Welcome to chapter 24 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson. We're about to talk about that extraordinary period when, for 11 years, England, a nation almost unimaginable except as a monarchy, was rebranded a Commonwealth and lived with no one on the throne. The Commonwealth was a republic. England was a kingdom without a king. It was unprecedented, unheard of, unnerving. What's more, once the last shot was fired in Ireland, the first of the three kingdoms into war and the last out, there was finally peace again. Still, even in England, peace didn't come peacefully. To be fair, unlike in Ireland, when it came to England, Cromwell followed Machiavelli's advice to be economical with cruelty. In part, that may have been because he was dealing with compatriots and, in general, with co-religionists. Incidentally, this may not be the last time we come across instances of the English authorities being a lot more bloodthirsty in Ireland than in England. So how did Cromwell impose his will in England? You'll remember that the outbreak of the Second Civil War had interrupted the Putney debates into just how much freedom the ordinary Englishman should enjoy. That left issues to settle, and on some of them Cromwell had decidedly strong opinions. You know, all that hot-headed, newfangled nonsense the levellers spouted about things like universal suffrage. That was the weird notion that absolutely everyone, well, every adult except paupers, servants, apprentices and, naturally, women, should have the right to vote. That was an idea that was never going to fly. Once the fighting was over, Cromwell brought the debate to a quick and, to him, satisfactory end. If you're thinking that he did it by winning the argument, think again. As is traditional with military leaders, he used force, even if it was relatively limited force. He had 400 levellers arrested. Four were condemned to death. In the end, just three executions took place. But it was enough. It broke the back of leveller resistance. They were never again a serious threat to the regime of the grandees. The kind of England that emerged in the time of the Commonwealth was peaceful and increasingly prosperous as war damage was repaired and trade boomed. Well, it was peaceful internally, at least. Externally, it was as warlike as ever. Republican England fought wars against Holland, Portugal and Spain, mostly over commercial rights, especially with the Dutch, who had won themselves a predominant position in maritime trade around the globe. That was the position England hankered after for itself. England was becoming a place in which large fortunes could be made, a great hub of commerce, and it was enjoying the prosperity that that brings. What it wasn't becoming was the kind of Zion Cromwell had hoped the civil wars would create, a godly place, a common wealth of a people united in the pursuit of the righteous. What kind of place, you might be wondering, would that be? The crushing of the levellers marked the end of any move towards what we might recognise as a democracy. In fact, the word democrat would remain an insult for at least another two centuries. England may have been a republic, but it turns out that republicans aren't necessarily democratic. A sad truth not entirely unknown in our own times either. 
As far as the grandees were concerned, the problem with Charles I's regime wasn't a lack of democracy, it was that it had taken England in the wrong direction. The king's way had been the way of sin. Cromwell and his supporters had been given the task by God to set England back on the path of righteousness. What was needed wasn't democracy, it was the rule of the godly. Those godly politicians must have been a real pain, as anyone who's convinced he has a monopoly of the truth always is. But Cromwell, at least, was perhaps not quite the monster of self-belief that some of them were. He saw himself as an agent of God, but not as some kind of little god himself. English school kids are taught that he told his portrait painter to paint him warts and all. The ability to see his own defects redeems some of the less attractive features of the man. It's a quality it would be wonderful to see other politicians share, down to our own times. That meant that he never sought power for its own sake, but only to drive back the assaults of those he saw as the ungodly. If he sometimes came across as little different from any other military dictator, it was because he used armed force as a tool to achieve his political ends. To him, however, they were righteous ends. He did not seek power for his own gratification. Indeed, he saw the exercise of power as a chore, a necessary task that it had fallen on him to perform, and not a goal to pursue for its own sake. Sometimes, though, it's hard to tell the difference between the power-greedy and the self-righteous. From the point of view of the victim, it makes very little difference. If you're looking down the barrel of a gun, it doesn't matter that the man at the other end is about to pull the trigger for his own gratification, or because he thinks he's doing God's work. All you want is for him to change his mind. Perhaps the real difference his motivations made was in Cromwell's failure to build a fully dictatorial structure of power. Charles II was able, after all, to escape from England. Nearly a century and a half later, Louis XVI of France would attempt the same trick. He tried to escape abroad from the revolution that had seized his capital. However, he didn't enjoy the same good fortune as Charles II. He was intercepted, arrested, then brought back to Paris and ultimately guillotined. In the 20th century, Nicholas II of Russia would be assassinated by Bolshevik soldiers. Cromwell, on the other hand, never built a police state. Indeed, opponents, and even royalists, were able to live in England without fear of arrest. Men who had refused to back the trial of the king, for example, could continue in public life without facing persecution. Even so, limited though his use of it may have been, Cromwell was employing military power to achieve political ends, or godly ends as he would have seen them and the number of hands exercising power was constantly reducing. The rump parliament did away with the House of Lords, leaving a single chamber legislative assembly, and then it appointed a council of state, a body still smaller than the much-reduced parliament, to run affairs under its direction. Cromwell eventually lost patience with the rump parliament too. As a member of parliament himself, he could attend and take part in its debates. One day, angered by the rump's failure to move towards a more permanent and godly constitution for the country, he showed up with a company of musketeers which he initially parked outside. "'You are no Parliament!' he roared at the end of a barnstorming speech. "'I say you are no Parliament!' The musketeers then moved into the chamber. 
You remember that Charles's undoing had started with his attempt to use armed force to enter the House of Commons and arrest his opponents there. Now Cromwell, who had risen to the top of the military force that overthrew the king who'd had that temerity, had pulled off the same trick where Charles had failed. As so often, the revolution succeeded in using the very form of oppression that its old adversaries had been unable to carry off and against which it had revolted in the first place. Think of the Russian Bolsheviks reintroducing the death penalty against which they'd previously campaigned. Inside the Commons Chamber of the English Parliament, and with soldiers to back him, Cromwell proclaimed, You have sat too long for any good you have been doing lately. Depart, I say, and let us have done with you. In the name of God, go. In England, the army had won the war to defend parliamentary freedoms and prevent royal despotism. Now it was being used to do away with Parliament. Instead, it was enforcing the rule of a single man who had all the means necessary to become a new despot himself. England was a republic, but certainly not a democratic one. Just what kind of a country England would become under Cromwell's leadership is something we'll look at in the next episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>